welcome to episode five of What is going on, everybody? Welcome to episode eight of the Not A Real Veteran podcast. This is my co-host, Braxton Voorhees. I'm Will Darty. We're excited to talk to you tonight about what's going on in the world and being libertarian. Just kidding. This is my co-host, Tammy Gavin. Close. Swap of L. Tommy Gavin. Tommy Gavin. Man, you'd be really, really, really bad at Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> That's great. Who is Tommy Gavin? Um, he's like the main character on Rescue Me. Oh, so you're just going through FX shows each each week? Not strictly FX. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> okay, dude, if, we're gonna see. If I was an Animagus, I totally would not be a cat. I'd be something cool. What would you be if you were an Animagus? That's a great question. Uh, that's a big question. I don't know. Maybe something that could fly. That'd be cool. Me too. I would definitely be a thick build mirror. Because then I could fly and dive 200 feet underwater to hunt fish. That's a great question for our viewers. If you were an animagus, what animal would you be? And if you don't know what an animagus is, please go watch or read Harry Potter immediately. I love how Mohican, hi. We know you are. We know you are, Roy. All right, guys. Well, welcome to Not A Real Veteran. We have to start, as always, with our wonderful ad reads because we have to make money to keep doing this show. So I will begin the Tennessee Radical Caucus, guys. If you guys don't know what the Radical Caucus is, they are basically the closest group to anarcho-capitalists that you have in the Libertarian Party, which is probably why their colors are black and yellow. Um, they are open borders. They are pro-choice. They pretty much take the libertarianism viewpoints to the absolute extreme. Um, they pretty much represent the LP national platform the most purely. They are radical. So if that's what you're about, definitely join them. They are uh, serious about fighting for liberty, and they do not concede. Oh, hey, Tom for 52.com. There's no quitting Queter. He's running for, uh, what was it, State Assembly, Will? Uh, State Senate. Oh, yeah, State Senate for the state of New York. A very, very, very knowledgeable guy. Uh, Definitely someone we like having on ballots. Um, close personal friend of Larry Sharp. Uh, I know they compete together in a lot of backyard slash tailgate style games, cornhole, beer pong, <laughs> croquet, um, all that sort of stuff. Lawn darts. He's an absolute beast and he deserves to represent his district in New York. So check out his website and give him some of your monies. And it's funny, you know, people always look different on these headshots when they're politicians, of course, especially. But Thomas is actually 6'4 in real life. He actually played in the NBA for a short period of time. So if you meet him in person, very intimidating guy. But Tom for 52com And we have, of course, Crowned by Gold, book three of the Royal Green series. Here is book one, which I have been neglecting reading. I'm sorry, Jack Casey. I've been very busy, but... Jack is a brilliant man. I'm sure that his books are absolutely fantastic. We will all get around to reading them eventually. And you can find them at theroyalgreen.com, on Kindle and paperback, or on Amazon if that's your gig. Royal Green. And they're very inexpensive if you buy them digitally. Seriously, they're cheap as hell. Even if you buy the paperback, it's not bad at all. It's a really good price. It's a really good price, but you're not supposed to call anything that you're selling cheap. 
Speaking Appreciate of it. speaking of not cheap, the Alaskan Raven. Um, although they don't charge you any money, they are your plug for memes, spicy memes, wholesome wholesome memes, um, memes on memes on memes, and they're at Slick Crow. Check them out on Facebook. Follow, like everything they post, share everything they post. Tell them we sent you, and you'll get nothing, and we'll get nothing. But we like the Alaskan Raven. <laughs> well said. All right. So, um, wow, we actually have a question already. Before we start the show, let's get to it then. How do libertarians feel about independence? Well, Tom, if you're, I'm going to answer for myself. Well, I'll just answer for all libertarians. I feel like I have that authority. I'm a podcast host. So, is this talking about secession? I'm assuming when you say independence, then I would say that most libertarians are definitely for it because, and Lucas says so as well, 110% pro. The reason being that libertarians believe in this concept called localism, which means that power should reside at the most local level possible. In order to respect individual liberty, if you're going to have any form of government at all, which libertarians also still debate on, it should be localized government. Um, You know, people in Washington, D.C. can't represent people in California and Oklahoma and Kansas, but, but people in Oklahoma City can probably represent people in Oklahoma a lot better. And even better yet, people in your city, in your town, in your neighborhood can represent you even better. So um, I'm definitely pro-secession completely. I think that all of our states should be independent of the United States government. I'm also a dissolutionist, so I don't think that the U.S. government should exist any longer. Um, And I can't speak for all libertarians on that. But what do you think, Braxton? How do you feel about independence? Um, Independence? Um, He said, (laughs) Tom said, about politics. So I'm still not on oh. the exact track. Are you, Tom? Are you talking about like registering as an independent, or what do you mean by that exactly? And while he's, uh, you know, confirming that or clarifying, Pam says she is halfway through the first Royal Green book, and it's pretty good. Hell yeah, Pam! Very lackluster review, but mm-hmm. still, after you finish it, we want to hear the rest of your review, Pam. So please come back. Let us know how it finishes up for you. Roy, the Mohican Libertarian, said if he was an Animagus, he would be Bigfoot. Well, as members of the Not Real Podcast Network, we very much appreciate that. Um, well, while Tom's coming up with uh, his question here and explaining what he was talking about, we wanted to talk a little bit about ourselves tonight because we feel like, you know, we have guests on the show a lot. We talk about news. We talk about issues going on. We talk about libertarianism. But we want you guys to get to know us a little better. This was Braxton's idea. For us to talk a little bit about what we did in the military, what military service was like for us, and how we look back on it now. So, uh, Braxton, why don't you start, man? What did you do in the Air Force? Um, what was the day-to-day life like for you, and where? how did that get you to where you are today? Mm. All right. Uh, two months of basic training in San Antonio, like everybody in the air force. And I actually stayed there at Lackland for my tech school, which is AIT MOS school, a school for all the other branches. I'm going to stop you right there. I just want to say as much as I love Braxton, Braxton was really shitty about organizing his locker in basic training. That's all. Thank you. Well, so that wouldn't come as a surprise to anybody that knows me, but what would come as a surprise to them is that's not true. My locker was not um, unorganized. I was bad at other stuff, but. Okay. Well, well, okay. We'll debate that later then. Maybe, maybe I remember it incorrectly. I somehow remember us working on your wall locker because you were like in the like special group of kids who failed their wall locker inspection, but I could be wrong. 
No, I was on okay. my last. I was on my last life, and the reason was there were all these strings, and I don't know why there's so oh. many like uh, stray strings on the new uniforms. But uh, where I really messed up uh, because I'm stupid for some reason. After we failed the uh, first wall walker inspection, everybody that failed, every, they got reinspected, and I had it in my mind. The good idea fairy is what the military calls it at large. I thought, you know, it was kind of like double jeopardy. Like once you get your wall locker inspected, they're not inspecting stuff you already failed for. So I was just like, oh, I failed because I had all these like stray strings on my uniform. So I looked at everything else and I was like, oh, you know, my spacing's good. Everything else is good. So I'm not going to fail. They came and they're like, look at all these strings. And then I was, yeah. I'm in <laughs> so for you guys who think that's a joke and in, in the military, you literally do have to, well, in basic training, you have to clip all the strings off your uniform. You get these brand new uniforms. They're just covered in strings and the motherfucking, sorry, the strings just appear out of nowhere and you sit there with toenail clippers and you clip all of the strings off so that your uniform is pristine. It's no joke. But yeah, that was basic training. Um, I think, I mean, like it wasn't, uh, you know, crazy difficult. I mean, it was, I thought it was difficult at the time. And then maybe for like the year after, like I really, I had like, uh, I don't know what you'd call. Like I had anxiety, like past tense. I was still like anxious about it. Like, Whoa, that was awful. But then, uh, as more and more time went by, I was kind of like, man, I wish, uh, I wish I could go back because it would be so much fun going in, like knowing what I know now. Uh, who cuts your hair? Uh, well, Tyler Schuler, And if you guys need a barber in Oklahoma City, he's awesome. But he sadly didn't do this one. This was sports clips. So that is why it sucks. Thanks for pointing it out, Chris. Mm. I like this haircut. Fuck you guys. Yeah, I thought it looked good. Um, Thanks, bro. But basic training was basic training. Everybody uh, understands. And then... Uh, tech school was at the same base. That was three months. So I spent um, roughly, well, I think it was maybe three and a half months. But So I spent roughly first six months in the military at Lackland Air Force Base. Uh, went to my first duty assignment, which was Thule Air Base, Greenland. Um, went there Christmas Day that year. And uh, I know your tech school was like considerably shorter. Uh, I think you might have taken RAP, but uh, I don't know. When did you first, when did you arrive at Ramstein? I uh, arrived at Ramstein, I think the third week in October. So yeah, I was out. I was out fast. No, no, no. I think it was the first week of November. But yeah, I got I got done with all that stuff way faster than you did. Well, so the yeah, I was flying out Christmas Day, which was an experience because here I am, fresh out of you know basic training and tech school, in my you know ABUs military uniform going through like DFW, I think flying to Baltimore international, uh, you know, in uniform on Christmas day. So, I mean, everybody and their mother was stopping me. Thank me for my service, which is a very nice thing to do. That's a very kind thing. But I mean, right out of tech school. So, um, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Seriously. <laughs> and you know, some people even ask me like, Oh, you know, did you, you know, did you get a break from like Afghanistan to go home and see your family? Like, um, nope, I'm going to my first duty assignment, but thanks. Um, but so, I mean, people were like really nice. And then, but when I got to, when I finally got to Baltimore, uh, the airport was about shut down at that point. So the only part of the airport that was open was the AMC terminal. And, uh, so there was just a couple of us, maybe like 20, probably about 20 people that were going back to Greenland. They had taken some vacation time to be home for the holidays. And, uh, so we're the only ones in the airport. 
And whenever it's finally time for us to board, someone comes, gets us, and they walk us down like this ramp, like on the side of the gate. We go down to like the runway and we get on the weirdest vehicle I've ever been on my life. What I can, I only describe it as like a, almost like a trailer house on a scissor lift, except uh, it was extremely square. It was a very, very, very square vehicle. And we all fit in there. It looked like a city bus, except it was a square. And they drove us, you know, at about two and a half miles an hour uh, to our plane. And then they kind of, you know, rose up. They didn't have, they didn't bring the stairs that the president can't walk up. They uh, scissor lifted us up. And the the plane was really unique because the front half of the plane was uh, for cargo. So it wasn't pressurized. So you load from the back. And uh, if you like lean out into the aisle and look towards the front of the plane, there's just a solid wall. There's not a door. There's nothing. So you're in the back with like two stewardesses, but then there's just a solid wall. And that was, uh, I didn't really feel any way about it, but it was uh, pretty unique. It's weird. I don't know if I'd feel a little less comfortable, but you know, cargo planes aren't bad. And another thing. So, I mean, like I said, it was Christmas day. It was the end of December and I'm going to Greenland. So uh, whenever I land there in like the late afternoon, I go and sit by the window and I look outside and watch the sun go down. Cause I knew that was going to be the last time I saw sunlight for a couple months. That's sad, dude. That's sad. Yeah, it was cool. It was groovy. Nostalgic. Uh, yeah, but I mean, yeah, it was kind of like, yeah, I knew that. That was the last time I was going to see sunlight for quite a while. Um, so, yeah, flew straight to Greenland. So, at this point, it's like uh, December 26th, and I get to the base, and uh, I get taken to, like, the headquarters building, and I get set down. And uh, people were cycling in and out of there. They'd come, and they'd have, like, you know, manila folders with paperwork for me to sign, and everybody was in, like uh, – sweatpants and you know that sort of thing wasn't exactly what i was expecting and you know like me and abus and everything so i didn't know anybody's rank they would just come in they'd be like hey welcome to base i need you to sign this up blah 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 well i didn't know this until like a lot later on but what it was is that was my in processing to the base which was really easy because how small it is but you know they just had a massive christmas party like hours before so everybody was like hung over so they're you know they just <laughs> they just rolled out of bed to come because i was the only new guy so yeah they literally just put down like papers in front of me like sign this like all right cool you in process so that was pretty awesome that's um, awesome i wish yeah. it was that easy everywhere oh dude yeah i'm absolutely um and then so my time in greenland i was a uh, response force member and entry controller and armor i was there for a year uh got mid-tour leave went and hung out in germany tell them about the rabbits um, yeah, they, the Arctic rabbits up there, they were sort of strange in the way that they, they were a lot bigger and, uh, they traveled in herds or packs. So you'd see like, uh, rabbits, like 50, 50 deep. Oh dude. Hey, can you, uh, real quick. Can, if That's I, scratching me. if I message you a picture, can you share it? Sure. I was actually looking for a picture of that people lifter. I thought I'd be able to find one on the internet, but I can't. But and yeah, uh, I'm surprised yeah. You, you never worked with one of those. You never had something like that specific. Never something like that. That's what I was shocked. I was like, how would I not know what that is? Right. But, uh, yeah, dude, I have no idea. Send it to me on Facebook though. And I'll pull it up. Yeah. Like, yeah. Messenger. Yeah. And so, but yeah, the animals were cool there in general. I thought I was going to be seeing, I thought I was going to be doing some recreational hunting. Like, to be honest, I thought I was going to be shooting like muskox and polar bears and all this other stuff. Like, no, absolutely not. We had rules of engagement for the polar bears. Like you have to be on death's door before you can uh, shoot a polar bear because it interferes with the locals being able to hunt them. Um, I never even got to see a polar bear up close, which was extremely disappointing. That is disappointing, man. I would, I heard that they hunt people. Is that true? Do you know that? 
Yeah, they're kind of unique in the way that uh, they're. I think they're the only species of bear or animal that will like actively hunt humans. I say I that, that maybe maybe that's a. I don't know. I, I would feel like maybe like wolves or something. A lot of other animals of prey would do that. No, I've always heard that though. Holy shit, man! This is crazy. Okay, I'm sorry. Oh yeah, I wasn't lying. <laughs> what? I don't know. Now I need to know what is a group of rabbits called. So, nope, that's wrong. Let me pull this up. Can you see that? Can everybody see that? No. So, oh wait, no, hardly. Okay, so we've got here. Hold on, let me see if I can zoom in. Yeah, zoom. So we have here. It's just a bad picture. Well, but this and you're not hardly zooming, bud. Uh, okay, zoom more. Oh, I can't zoom anymore. Can Don't you not? Me. I, I don't know how to do things on your end. I don't even know how to. Uh, can you not save that and pull it up some other way? Anyhow. Yeah, I can do that. I can do that. That's true. Good thinking. Look at you. I mean, uh, I but I'm not sure if it'll let me share that. Let me find out. Hold on. Yeah, I sure don't know either. Window. Okay. Um, the Arctic foxes, obviously, really cool, and the. And actually, now I've kind of got it mixed up. Part of the year, they're black, but then the other part of the year, their fur turns white. Here we go. Can you see that? Yeah, yeah that's better. Perfect. All right, guys. So this is a, a flock, a pod, a school of Arctic hare. And uh, honestly, they're, they're quite a bit bigger than normal rabbits that you'd see around. They're pretty darn big. That's freaking awesome, man. And then you sent me another picture as well. Hold on. Let me get that pulled up real quick. Whoa, that's dope. Super dope. Okay. All right, so where is this? Oh, uh, that's on oh, Mount whoops. Dundas. Can you see it? Yep, you got it. Are you looking at it? Oh, I was, not now. Now it's black. Okay, hold on, hold on. Darkness. We're getting better here, but we're still having struggles. Not the best. Uh, okay. There we go. Beautiful. So Mount Dundas. Wow. That's pretty freaking insane, man. Just like covered. Is that all ice? Yeah. I mean, but that's obviously since it's light outside, that's in the summer. So that's the only time you got like a few months where the ocean's not frozen solid. Uh, that was the first time we climbed Mount Dundas. The, uh, second time I was voluntold to go up there with the wing commander and the wing command chief. That's freaking insane, man. Damn. That was pretty insane. It's a good picture. I remember when that was on your Facebook like years and years ago, but hell yeah. I like it. Um, yeah, obviously really, 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 really fun time. It was a really unique experience. Um, I'm really jealous of people. Uh, you know, my friend Gage, uh, his best Air Force friend, he just uh, went to Antarctica briefly. Uh, so, that, you know, I would like to go to that poll as well. I was really jealous of that, but. Right. And if you guys don't know this, if military does, but if you serve in Antarctica, you actually get a special Antarctic ribbon just for serving, which is the little, you know, the little things that go on your chest on your dress uniform. They know what a ribbon is. I know you know what a ribbon is. No, I said they know. Who doesn't know what a ribbon Uh, is? I think people who aren't necessarily veterans or no military culture might not know what a ribbon is. I mean, they might think of just a ribbon. (laughs) Get your shit together, Will. This isn't Muddy Waters Media. Ouch. Uh, if, if you watch the podcast with Sean Hickman and Bearded Truth, the Mr. Beard, the greatest beard on Muddy Waters, they were talking about how much Muddy Waters has technical difficulties, but uh, <laughs> that's funny. We're, we're just like them. We just use StreamYard because we're more simple. We're more easygoing. But okay, so Greenland, um, what was it like leaving Greenland? Did you miss it? Was it, was it hard? Yeah. Was, it, was it finally good to leave? 
No, it was it was pretty. I mean, I was excited uh, to go do big airport stuff, but uh, it, it was pretty rough just because it's like so small. You, I mean, because it's the same thing everywhere. You always get like real close to the people you work with, but Greenland was tiny, and just the amount of freedom you had there was honestly like ridiculous. Like we just got away with so much um, because I mean, like you're geographically separated from like any other. I mean, the rest of your command. So, like for example, we, uh, my unit, my squadron, we didn't have a first sergeant. Like the entire base had one first sergeant. Same thing with the chief. The entire base had one chief. So, because um, I mean, yeah, and most of the, I think I said this on a previous podcast, most of the units were like one or two man units. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Wow. Yeah, yeah a lot of them were. I mean, the security forces squadron was the biggest one. And then I'm trying to think. And then the space system operators, who are probably Space Force now, um, they also had quite a few because they, you know, that that's the mission there. But everything else was one or two man departments, like one or two people in finance, a senior NCO, and then usually a tech sergeant, maybe a staff sergeant. That's weird. So it's not like if you get in trouble or something, it's not like there's a huge distance to travel up your chain of command. It's like, oh, there's your there's your boss right there. You probably know him. You probably know where he sleeps. You probably drink with him on Friday night. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the uh, yeah, just the culture is really cool. The commander, the base commander, when I got there, he was very pro like uh, drinking and what have you. Like he would tell you that like, I want everybody to go to the bar, have a good time. There's only one bar. Uh, you didn't have like the separation between officer and enlisted. Uh, so that was a little bit different. Um, I embarrassed myself more than a bunch of times there, but uh, <laughs> no NJP or any uh, trouble to speak of. So good job. I mean, I mean, the base was legit. The uh, DFAC was amazing because it wasn't an Air Force DFAC. It was contracted. So uh, it was freaking incredible. Hell yeah, those are the best ones. That, it the was best. incredible. But yeah, it was, it, was, it was a great time. Loved Greenland. Okay. So then after Greenland, and you mentioned you went you came, went to leave halfway through your tour, came and mm-hmm. visited your good friend Will in Germany. That was dope. We went to a soccer game, went to uh, no, that, the bars. No, that wasn't that time. We went to the what? bars. No, the FCK game was when I was stationed there. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I mean, we went to, like, Trier. and uh, Yeah. I, dude, I think, honestly, like, it was amazing. But the thing I was most impressed with was probably the Happy Hippos. <laughs> if you guys have not tried mind. Happy Hippos, try Happy Hippos. They should sponsor this podcast. Those things are the greatest candy on earth. Um, yeah, they're amazing. And But, you know, that was the year, remember, that was the World Cup when Germany was playing Brazil. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Were you there in Kaiserslautern when they were, like, yes. waving flags and stuff? And the yeah, flare? dude. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot you were there. So we were in we were in Kaiserslautern in the big city nearby whenever Germany won the World Cup and people were going freaking crazy, standing on their cars and waving flags and shooting fireworks, and it was nuts. I forgot you were there for that memory, man. That That was a good time. Yeah, dude, and you know, I think uh, it was the day, or I think it was the game or the match before the championship match, before the one they won, but they beat Brazil like 6-1, to one, which, That's you know, right. anything about soccer, that is a ridiculous score. That never happens. But, yeah, people were going crazy in the streets. I mean, no exaggeration. That's what they were doing. They were going crazy in the streets. I was scared for my life. <laughs> Will they thought it was their, awesome. They love their soccer. So, uh, so after after you leave Greenland, tell us about the next chapter in the saga. Uh, Osan Air Base, South Korea. Um, I wasn't planning on going there. When you go to a short tour in the Air Force, uh, you're supposed to get a base of preference afterwards. And uh, my entire tech school team, there's like maybe six or seven of us. We didn't get a follow on assignment, is what it's called. 
um, because when we graduated tech school, I don't know if you remember, I think that was the first time that Obama shut down the government. And oh, so yeah. all of the reservists were not working. All the reservists had to go home. And I'm pretty sure I've never had this confirmed, but what makes sense to me is I'm pretty sure the reservists might completely run AFPC which is the personnel center who processes like all the paperwork for assignments and stuff like that. That would make sense to me because nobody on my tech school team got a follow on. So like <laughs> usually what people do, you, you ask to go to a base that, you know, is not very desirable, like, you know, a remote base in Greenland or one of the bases in Korea, Turkey, um, Man, there might be a few more, but they're not really coming to mind. But then, so say like Hon- Honduras has one. Uh, yeah, there's not many. But then you know you get to pick where you go afterwards. So you can that's that that could be your ticket to go to some random naval base in uh, Italy or Guam or Hawaii. Like if you want to go somewhere in the military, like that's how you do it. Well, nobody on my tech school team did, and I feel really bad for a lot of people because people ended up going to like Delaware, Utah. Like man, you know that really sucks. But me. Um, I just volunteered for another short tour. I was like, well, if I didn't get it this time, I'll get it next time. And uh, so I asked to go to Korea, the Air Force obliged. So they sent me to Osan Air Base, South Korea, um, which that's where Chuck Norris spent his time as an Air Force Security Forces member. So I got to walk in Chuck Norris' footsteps. And, you know, he he lived not very far away from me. So I'm really following his footsteps. Kind of a big deal. Tell him about your tattoo idea. Well, there's a, since Chuck Norris was in the Air Force, there's a Jody that you learn in basic training called Chuck Norris. And uh, he's referred to as the bearded ninja. And I was actually going to get like Chuck Norris's face. Uh, I don't know, probably right here somewhere. And then I was going to get the Korean, the Hangul characters for bearded ninja. I've just not got around to it yet. And wasn't Chuck Norris also security forces? Yeah. So they did the same job and were stationed at the same base. So that's pretty dope. And we're from the same place. Braxton Voorhees is basically the new Chuck Norris, if you haven't noticed. That's what I'm saying. Hell yeah. yeah the story was he had to, uh, there's an incident with like a local and uh, he couldn't get him under control and he had to pull his sidearm on him. And uh, after the fact, he like felt really bad that this, you know, like five foot three Korean dude presented so much of a problem that he felt like he had to draw his pistol on him. So that's when he started learning martial arts over there in Korea. No shit. So is he a Taekwondo guy? Is that what he started? with? I think so. I think that, I think that is his martial art. I could be wrong on that though. Huh? I lost a lot of respect for him just now. No, I'm just kidding. Taekwondo. <laughs> but, um, okay. So, um, uh, go ahead, man. That, that one, same thing a year meant some like really awesome people had a lot more amenities than Greenland did. I mean, like we had a Chili's, we had a BX, you know, uh, it was a cool base. Um, and actually my, my flight, in Korea, which a flight is like the equivalent of a platoon, uh, roughly like 60 to 80 people. So that's just like kind of the people you go to work with. My flight in Korea was bigger than my unit in Greenland. That is freaking insane. Yeah. So, I mean, just the size difference. Um, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a good assignment too. Like I said, met a lot of really good people. Uh, it, it was a cool assignment. Uh, nothing... I mean, yeah, it was really cool. I was there for a year, had basically the same duties. Um, entry controller, response force member. Uh, I was a flight armor, and uh, I was being trained to be an alarm monitor, but I never got certified in that before I left. And then um, right before I left Greenland is when I found out, you know, they notified me that I got my follow-on from Korea. It was going to be Vogelway, Germany. 
and I didn't really know where that was. So I'm, I think I, you know, messaged you like two minutes after I got that email, like, Hey, what's Vogelway? Is that close? Cause I, I just put everything, uh, in Germany on my dream sheet. So I had like Spengdalen, Ramstein, uh, Vogelway. And I think just Germany, cause you could put just like a country or a region. And I got Vogelway, which, uh, so I go there and it's a very special unit in the Air Force. It's the 569th United States Forces Police Squadron, uh, which is the only one left. Used to, there were a couple. And, uh, man, without getting into a lot of boring history, it was it was very interesting. It was traditionally, historically, a joint unit between the Air Force and Army. It's not technically a joint unit anymore because they have separate chains of command. But uh, we shared the base and off-base patrolling. We shared responsibilities. And that's what was special about it since there's a... Uh, it's called the Kaiser Slaughter military community. Um, there's just so many military bases in Germany. Um, just that area of Germany has so many air force or I'm sorry, so many Americans. They have more, there's more Americans in that area of Germany than anywhere else in the world outside of the continental United States. So our main mission was as like a town patrol ish was to respond to off base incidents for all the, uh, Americans in the country. If anyone got in like a traffic accident or, you know, lost their wallet, anything off base, they would call us for the entire country, actually, like all the way up to the <laughs> French border. Um, I never had to respond to any of those, but people in my unit did. So it was a special unit. And uh, what, 15 minutes away from you? Yeah, probably less than that. At one point, I lived really close to Vogelway. When you're over uh, by in Siedlerhof. Yeah. And you still you were still there for that, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, but not for very long, but okay. So yeah, about 15 minutes from me, I could get to you really quick. And uh, also when you first moved there, you stayed on base. So then we were like really close. We'd like walk to each other's place or ah, I'd yeah. go pick you up and shit, but yeah. Yeah, that was actually a bad deal though, because I don't know if you remember, I didn't have a GTC. Do you remember? Yeah, so. I do remember. You were paying for all that shit out of pocket at like this nice ass hotel on base. And did you ever get reimbursed for it? Dude, no. Man, the Air no. Force sucks sometimes. They... You get screwed when you're a veteran, but you get screwed in the military sometimes too. I mean, they do a lot for you, but there's so many cracks to fall through, especially when you're a young airman, that they don't hold your hand and uh, they can screw you over really hard. Like getting to a new base and not having a place to live. So you stay in the hotel because what else are you going to do? And then they don't reimburse you for it as they should. But uh, I think that's the logical thing to do. And man, you, uh, our, the first time I went to Germany, um, you know, we had it all planned out way in advance, of course, but you had just gotten a new car. And you were excited. You're like, dude, I just got this new car. It's sweet. I can't wait to show you. And I was like, all right, cool. And I already saw like pictures of your Audi station wagon and stuff. So I was like, man, you were real excited about this car. And you wouldn't tell me what it is. I was like, oh, you know, let me know what it is. And I'll look it up. And you're like, no, I want you to see it. It's going to blow your mind. I was like, all right, cool. So you come pick me up from the airport, um, which Frankfurt International, it's a nice, uh, <laughs> it's a nice airport. And uh, you picked me up and I was really excited to see your car. And it's a 2003 Nissan Micra. Which of course nobody knows what that is, but uh, I'll share a picture. Yeah, show I'll them share the a picture. little red roller skate. And then uh, I thought you were silly for loving that car so much. But then fast forward, you know, a year and a half to when I uh, when I get stationed there, and you sold me that car. That's right. That's right. Uh, I forgot that. Okay, hold on. And you had to you had to teach me how to drive it also. Uh, that's right, because it was a stick shift. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is a great car. I still miss this car. It's an amazing car. I have a thing for small cars, guys. I like uh, tiny little ones. So there you go. 
This is a 2003 Nissan Micra. It looked exactly like that. Same color and everything. It's basically a smart car, but Nissan made it. So it was better quality. I think it had a 1.2 liter four-cylinder engine. Oh, it says yep, it right yep. here. <laughs> 1.2 liter. Um, this one's automatic. Mine was a stick shift. So it got like 42 miles per gallon. It was mm. freaking unstoppable. And uh, I loved that car, man. I missed that thing. Yeah, it was a very good car. No air conditioning. Um, it tops out at about 180 kilometers an hour. Um, I found that out driving on the Autobahn all the way to like New Schwangau. Well, that's pretty damn Bavaria. fast. That's, oh, it's that's fast all enough. You need. Yeah, that's yeah. all you need. Yeah, yeah, it's for sure. And I think I've, I think I've converted it, and it's like 108 or 118 miles an hour. Yeah. So when are, when are you needing to go more than 118? But I mean, you know, on the Autobahn you can. So it's a good time. And yeah, that basically, uh, that wraps up, you know, my service, my experience. Hell yeah. So what has it been like since getting out? What does military service mean to you now? Now that you can kind of look back on it with like a big picture view, what does it mean to you? Uh, dude, honestly, I don't know. That's kind of a weird question. Can you phrase it a little <laughs> bit differently? Help me out. Yeah. How do you, how do you compartmentalize it in your life now? Because it's like, you're a veteran, right? You, uh, you're no longer active. So how do you, you know, how does that become a part of your life, your day to day, who you are, your identity? Okay. Yeah. So I try to recreate that. I only speak in military, uh, jargon. I, I was trying to say slargon, but I was like, I know that's not right. <laughs> I know that's not right. But that's all I was coming up with was slargon. I only speak in military jargon and, uh, I make all my coworkers watch like really random YouTube videos, like uh, don't hug me. I'm scared. Shrek is love. Shrek is life. Old Greg salad fingers. <laughs> so I'm just, I just, uh, I forgot about Shrek is love. Oh my gosh, man. I just re, I just recreate my military experience every day and everybody around me. They're just long for the ride. Hell yeah, man. That's what's up. Okay. That's a good answer. That's a good way to do it. So you haven't let go of it fully. You're like, I'm going to keep, uh, just keep being an airman. No, I'm just kidding. Else. No, not hardly. Try not to do that. Don't be a don't be a bro vet. Whatever you guys do, I hope yeah, no exactly. bro vets are watching. But uh, I am wearing an Air Force T shirt, so I'm kind of in the bro vet range right now. But wow, all right, that's last, that's the last comment. <laughs> um, okay, all right, hell yeah, that's great. So I think I think that's enough getting to know us for today. I think we got to know no. you very well. Let's well, yeah, get I was to say now it's your turn. Now it's your turn. We'll save me for another episode. Okay. Let's uh let's talk about libertarianism a little bit because this is a libertarian podcast and oh, yeah. uh yeah, let's talk about the issues a little bit. So um shit, now I forgot what we were gonna talk about. What was your idea before? Well, last week uh you were you had to explain the different matrix pills to me. Okay, yeah, matrix pills. So you wanted to ask about why I was white pilled. Yeah, because uh again something I talked about last week was uh because you're an anarchist. Mm-hmm. And uh, so is that, well, I know that Michael Malice, he just wrote that book called The White Pill, but uh, isn't, don't, doesn't it seem like the white pill approach is kind of counterintuitive to the anarchist? Now, uh, his book was called The Anarchist Handbook. Is that what you're yeah. talking about or did he just nope. write a new book? Different book. Yeah. And maybe what? it hasn't come out yet, but yeah, for sure. That's right. I heard about it on a podcast recently, but I think it hasn't come out yet from what I know. I could be wrong unless it just dropped recently. But um, so... For everybody who's watching who doesn't understand like white pill versus black pill, it's pretty much, you know, optimism versus pessimism in the way that you view the future of the movement and libertarianism and just the future of our country, really. Um, so I would say, no, I don't think that being white pilled is 
counterintuitive to anarchy. I think that anarchy is just the purest ideal of libertarianism. It's just saying that, you know, in the perfect world, we want no government to make a world that's purely fair, to make a world that's purely um, right by moral standards where nobody is oppressing each other. Then you can't have government in that world. It doesn't belong. Mm -hmm. Um, But why do you think that that would be contradictory to a white pill approach in your opinion? Because that helped me answer the question. Because as you know, mostly a minarchist, it's already frustrating. It's already hard enough trying to uh, pave a way for minarchy, just to pave the way for government to be, you know, the least amount of you know seaward possible. You know, that's already like, you know, a Herculean task. So sure. how do you um, how how are you optimistic about a path to anarchy? That's an absolutely great question. Okay, I see what you're saying. So. I think that, you know, just like I talked about, okay, so let me share this veteran caucus tweet now, or uh, yeah, let me share this. Um, so it, it's a good question because I don't think, let me just share this and then we'll, we'll go into the question. Hmm. Here we go. Follow the veteran caucus if you guys don't already. All right. So this is a tweet today from us. When someone says libertarianism is too idealistic, tell them this. Ideals are goals we know will never be fully realized, but pursue anyway, because the result of striving for them and falling short is far greater than having no goal at all. And that's why, Braxton, because anarchy is my goal. It's my ideal. And I want to have it like a star when you're lost in the woods as a direction to go towards. I don't think that we'll have an anarchist society in my lifetime, maybe on a commune someday if I can, if you and me and our families can get together and build something great, but not in our entire country. And that's Mm -hmm. okay. Um, But I know that if I set that in my sights and I'm working as an activist every day and I'm doing what I can to fight government at every step, you know, when it tries to overreach and when it tries to be an a-hole or a C-word, as you were saying, um, yeah, then – then we're going to get better. We're going to end up in a better place. So that's how I justify that as, as a white-pilled person. And I think that's how you have to justify it as a white-pilled person. Part of being white-pilled is recognizing that you're either going to fight for liberty, you're either going to achieve liberty in your lifetime, or you're going to die trying. There is mm-hmm. no in-between. So maybe we keep failing every single day, but we're never going to stop. And that's just part of what you have to accept. And if you really believe in something, I feel like that's a pretty easy reality to accept. Hey, we might not get there, But if we give our life to it and fail, we're going to get a lot closer. And when we die and somebody else can step up and fill our shoes, they're going to be a lot better off than we are right now. So, Okay, I got you. That makes perfect sense. So you're uh, maybe the the black pill libertarians, they're like less likely to take action. Like they're pessimistic in that way. I would say I'd say they're not necessarily less likely to take action. Right. Because that's a personal thing. Maybe somebody's really nihilistic and black pilled and they don't believe that this is going anywhere. The country is going off a cliff. We have no hope. And maybe they still show up to a protest and maybe they still fight. You know, that's not that's between, um, you know, that's between them and God, I guess. But I would say that what they don't do is probably inspire people to get up and fight with them. And I think that's what being white pilled really is that's the difference between white pill and black pill. A black person can still be inspired to fight themselves. Um, but if they're pessimistic and they don't, you know, instill hope in people, they're not going to get as many people out uh, off their ass to fight as well. Um, so I think being an optimist in that regard, you have to instill hope. You have to make people believe that these things are good and worth fighting for. Not necessarily that we're going to achieve these things in our lifetime, but Hey, small goals, right? I mean, if we can block these mandates, 
if we can block a shit bill coming down from the state capitol, if we can do those little things, we're still getting a little bit closer to it. We're helping. Um, we're getting closer to realizing that ideal. So I feel like that's, that's you know, I'm white-pilled no matter what. It's just who I am to believe in this and believe that we're going to do these things and we're going to change the world. Um, but when I see a very big difference in those people who have already kind of given up somewhere inside is that they're not they're not selling it. They're not convincing other people that liberty is the way. And the white-pilled people like Michael Heiss are. are. Mm. I got you, dude. You know, that actually brings up two things for me. Number one, you know, I actually disagree with that tweet. Um, I actually don't think, even though I'm, you know, I would say I'm gray-pilled. I'm a gray Jedi um, just because I have my foot in kind of both camps. But I don't think that it is too idealistic, libertarianism. I don't think it's too idealistic at all. And I don't think that we have... I don't think that our ideals are unattainable. I don't think like, not that I disagree with it. I just wouldn't put it that way. Like, yeah, you know, I don't think we're going to see it in our lifetime. You know, I don't agree with that full on. Cause I think, you know, maybe I'm a little more white pill than I think. I think we will one way or another. It might come after, you know, like our current establishment like collapses. Um, but, uh, and even more than that, I just think it's the talking about the rest of politics, the duopoly. I think it's just a total um, vacuum, just a total lack of ideals. There's just no ideals to be found. I mean, it's just statism and gross. And you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it just seemed really weird to me. That was my first thought. I was like, we're too idealistic. Like, no, we're idealistic period. Not in, you know, bold, not italicized. We're just idealistic. And they have like zero of that. They have no nuance. It's just, you know, I want, uh, it's just really odd, man, that they, so many people, especially like with this past election, like I knew a lot of people that really liked Donald Trump. He's like, all right, fine. But I don't know anybody that is actually a fan of Joe Biden or thinks that he represents them or their interests. It's just like, oh, man, that's what the uh, who the donkeys gave me. So that's my guy. I'm like, dude, that's really freaking awkward. You're absolutely right, man. I think I think you hit the nail on the head. They have no ideals. And that's kind of what's missing from politics and just belief in humans, period. Right. Like not even just in a political world, but in yourself and I think Justin Amash hit the nail on the head with his tweet last week whenever he said that the establishment parties are parties of inconsistent principles. Um, or what did he say? He didn't say inconsistent. He had another word. Uh, situational principles. That's what okay. he said. So it's like it's not like they have a firm ideal. It's like whatever the situation is, whatever benefits them most at that time, that's what they're going to go with and support. Um, we're different. We actually have an ideal to strive for, and I think that's what separates us. Um, but, you know, back to the argument about it never being fully realized, I think you're right. You know, like libertarianism in general is attainable. I think we can have a more libertarian government, um, but it's a spectrum, right? And what mm -hmm. I mean by I don't think we'll ever fully achieve it is that there's always going to be some C word vying for more power, no matter where it is. If you've got this perfect government set up, you've got the perfect constitution set up, you've got all the all the good things in writing to protect the people's rights, there's still going to be some a-hole who wants to override it, who wants to reach for power, who wants to declare a state of emergency. And so that's what I mean. It's not as if we can't, you know, get to a libertarian world, but mm -hmm. even in that world, it's going to take constant fighting. Libertarianism is like, you know, has to be constantly vigilant, even if we achieve it someday, because human nature means that there's always going to be somebody vying for more power. And that means there always have to be libertarians to protect the rights of the people. Absolutely. Um, so uh, more, more towards kind of the white pill, black pill, and just you specifically, we'll just, for you speaking for anarchists and you speaking for the white pilled uh, to the extent that you can, 
Um, you know, some of the things that you are a fan of that I am not, um, if you could explain to me and everybody else, the two big ones would be voting and protesting. Okay, sure. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different approaches to libertarianism and activism in general, right? And, you know, agorists, I love agorists. I think that's awesome. My barber's an agorist. He doesn't believe in paying taxes, so he doesn't. He doesn't believe in, um, you know, a lot of things like that. He, he believes in protesting through his economic situation mm-hmm. and just separating himself from the system as best he can. And that's a really great way to fight for libertarianism. Um, and to a lot of agorists and a lot of anarchists, voting is an endorsement of the system. Mm-hmm. But I think as long as you vote libertarian, I feel like what you're telling people is that this is, you know, in a way it's a protest vote until we win. But at the same time, you're saying that you're choosing to de- not demolish the system, but scale it back significantly. And that's saying that, hey, I'm a person here in this state registered at this address who believes that this government is evil and that we need to roll it back and that we need to take it down and that this is the person I believe can do it best. Um, so I feel like all libertarians need to vote. I mean, I feel like it's great. I don't think that it's the only way to fight. I think agorism's great. I think protesting's great. I think voting's great. I think we should fight on every single front we can. And everybody has a different skill set and a different belief system that allows them to fight in one area better than others, you know? And that's totally up to them and their convictions. I'm a fan of doing it in every way I possibly can. You know, I can't not pay taxes. I, I'm W-2'd. I have an employer who takes those out of my paycheck automatically. So I don't have right. that option. Um, but I can I can organize a rally and go out and get people to hold signs at the street corner and yell about things that we care about and, you know, hopefully get it on a news station so that other people hear about it and know that we exist and know that somebody's fighting and somebody cares and resists. Um, so, yeah, so I don't. Um, yeah, I don't necessarily endorse one way or the other, and I understand anarchists who don't want to participate in the system, uh, but I think I think voting is a really positive way to fight. Hmm. What about you? Why do you think that voting might not be? What are the, what's the counter argument to that? Well, so like, honestly, it's like kind of like logistics, which is a fancy way of saying I'm lazy. Um, I don't want to have to, <laughs> you know, take time off work. You know, my work, I feel like they would give me the time, like, you know, they would give me the time to go vote, but I wouldn't be getting paid for it. So I'd be losing money to go stand in line with a lot of people that I don't like, that I don't necessarily care to be interacting with out in public. And uh, just so I could you know, maybe hopefully check a box on a ballot. And I'm just not as optimistic as you. I mean, overall, your point was great. And, uh, you know, you made Spike Cohen proud and all the other white bills. <laughs> you made a lot of people really proud. Like you put that really well. That That is a good point. But if I had to, uh, you know, argue against that, I would just say, you know, if you're saying that your vote signifies that you think the government's evil and uh, all that stuff, who do you think that's signifying that to? Like, do you really think that that registers to the person who counts the ballots? Or do you think that uh, the Joe Bidens and Donald Trump's of the world, when they see that X thousand libertarians, uh, you know, uh, achieve votes, that that really puts the fear of God in them? I think I think that it puts a spark of that fear in them. And that's why we need more people to vote. If it's one percent, they can laugh it off. If it's five, they might start getting a little sweaty. If it's 10, 15, they're gonna be scared shitless. Because all we need is one, two senators maybe in the Senate to completely dismantle what our government's been doing. Mm-hmm. Five, five to ten congressmen, local city councilmen. I mean I think that I think that a very small percentage of libertarians voting, 
you know, relatively compared to the other parties could put the fear of God in those people. Absolutely. And you're right that, but it's, you know, we can't sit here and say, do you really think that matters? Well, it's the numbers that make it matter. So by, by making that argument, you're discouraging us to have that strength. You know, you're, you're not to hate on you and I'm not hating on you, just the argument itself, but you know, it's, it's pushing people away from, from giving, getting us that power. You know, it's like, it's like you're in a, you have a crowd of people here to stand up to an oppressor and not all of them are willing to stand up because they're like, Oh, it's just one guy. You know, what's he going to do? And they don't realize that there's a hundred of them sitting there kneeling to this oppressor. If they all stood up and they all went out and followed him and did what there's, you know, fought, then that would put the fear of God in them. Yeah. So I believe it's possible. And I know because I've seen this movement grow over the last, you know, 12, 13 years that it's, it they're acknowledging us more and more. And I guarantee you, they're a lot more scared of us than we recognize. And that's why this extremist content stuff happens on Facebook. That's why so many libertarians get taken off Facebook and social media because the establishment is taking notes and they are getting, becoming aware of us and they are getting scared. Um, This movement grows exponentially every single day. It's the fastest growing party in the country and that will not stop. They're worried and they're going to get more worried every day. Well, you know, I think maybe probably the best tweet, and uh, now it sucks that I can't remember if it was either 20 or 21, uh, was Gary Johnson when, uh, who was it? Maybe someone was complaining that the debates were unfair, that they were, uh, the moderator was like favoring Biden and the questions favored Biden and all this stuff. And then uh, I think the... I think it was the commission for the debate said like, Oh no, we guarantee you this was a uh, completely bipartisan uh, debate. And then Gary Johnson said, Oh, that's odd. You know, I was told numerous times it was an unpartisan debate. Yeah. Right. Bipartisan. Exactly. They, they admit it right there. Um, and it was, it wasn't Biden. It was, it was Clinton back then. Wait. Oh, you mean recently? Yeah, it was recently. It was either, oh. I don't know if it was technically in 21 or 20 when he tweeted that, but it was after, it was after the debates and probably after the election too. Stephen is absolutely right. We need people mm-hmm. to run for lower level positions, nullify laws on a local level. That's where it all starts, guys. And that's what localism is about. That's what libertarian is about. There's over 200 elected libertarians across the country. In Oklahoma here, we have Chris Powell and Bethany, which is just right down the road from me. We've got Chad Williams. We've got um, Dylan Fiesel down in Altus. We've got a ton of elected libertarians. And there's more every day. So if you're a libertarian and you care about what's happening, run for local government. Um, that's an incredible way to get involved and do things. Unfortunately, I live in a metropolitan area. So for me, running for city council is basically the same as running for state house or Senate. Um, but still go fight, get out there. If you're, if you're somebody who's serious about these ideas, school board, that's a great idea, especially right now. I went to two school board meetings this year to oppose mask mandates and, uh, it's a hot issue and they need candidates who are Liberty minded to get those freaking things off our children's faces. Good grief. It's absolutely insane. But Good on you, Steven. Keep it up, man, and good luck. And, hey, you've got our endorsement already, man. You've had it from the beginning. But, uh, yeah, man, so that's why I believe in it. I hear you. I like it. Hell, yeah, man. So where do you consider yourself? You called yourself gray-pilled earlier. So mm-hmm. what – because, you know, let's be honest about it. Like, this isn't – the world's pretty dark, you know. China's running our government currently for the most part, right? But uh, as we think. There's somebody, there's some puppet master behind Biden. There's no way he's coming up with these ideas himself. So what do you think uh, about the future of the world and liberty? Do you think it could go south? South in a bad way? Yeah. 
Well, dude, dude, I'm with you. I'm not pessimistic in the way that I think we're like going to die as slaves. Um, because most people, they don't have to be like a uppercase L libertarian to have the mentality of like, uh, you know, I'd rather die on my feet than live on my knees. Like a lot of people have that view already, or at least they think they're due. And uh, so, no, I don't think like uh, it's doomed or we're, I, I'm not, opt- I'm not pessimistic in that way. I just don't think just the way the system works. It's kind of like we, it's like how you describe kind of the non Mises people in the movement. Like we're trying to play according, we're trying to play their game according to their rules. And it's like, no matter who I vote for, no matter who, you know, like a third, it really doesn't matter how many people vote or who they vote for. I feel like we're still going to see the same sort of things coming down. Like Biden's newest, like mask mandates, like, Hey, I'm just going to tell the department of labor that, or yeah, it was the department of labor. Yes. Uh, with the ocean, the, oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just gonna. I mean, they, you know, it's, they just violate the Constitution every single day in a myriad of ways. You're so, absolutely I mean, right. Go ahead. There's, there's just no system to stop them from doing that, other than uh, voting from the rooftops. But and and that there may be a day when you know that happens when we have to vote from the rooftops, God forbid, I, I, I really hope that never happens in my lifetime, but there may, there may come a day when we have to, but before that, you know, it's, it's, you're right. Those things will come down, but look at what's happening right now in all these States that are suing the Biden administration over these OSHA standards and some that'll probably even block it and States nullifying gun laws. You know, Oklahoma did that. We made second amendment sanctuary state as Oklahoma. So um, that means that new federal gun laws will not affect us here. And, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty, you know, pussyfooting as far as gun legislation should go. They should nullify all the gun restrictions that already exist. Let us have machine yeah. guns. But, um, but I mean, it doesn't have to, we don't have to just win elections nationally. We don't have to take over the presidency. We can fight Biden right here by winning locally and, uh, you know, protecting people. And Hey, you can even have a city council. If you've got balls to nullify a state law, if you've yeah. got real balls, now you're going to, whenever the state police show up, you're going to have to have a police department that's got balls too, and shows up and defends the people in your town. But there are ways to do this other than just thinking on a national level. And we got to remember that. Um, and and everything else you can do too, you know, protesting, getting out there, forming communes, hell, forming your own community, you know, saying, hey, we're independent, we're sovereign, we're not listening to you, this is our turf, um, anything like that. You know, there's just a, a plethora of ways to, to combat this system other than voting on the national level. But while you're doing all those other things, vote on the national level too. Because they need to know we're here. They need to know we exist. And we're not going to get to 15% until we get to five, you know, and we're mm. going to get there. You know, I think Michael Malice, he said it in a way, I mean, that's, he's the one that kind of took me from being indifferent to being a little bit on the darker side of the gray pill. But he said, you know, the whole point of America was that you would not be ruled over by someone that you didn't want ruling over you. Uh-huh. But I mean, if you're a libertarian, that's just your life. That's reality. It's exactly right, man. It's true. Wow. Sorry to cover our faces up. But this is a great, great comment by Steve. It's not only about running for local positions. We need people contributing to the culture, writing mm-hmm. fiction, making music, creating art, teaching others through these outlets. He's an online ESL teacher and has discussions with his foreign students who live in the USA. That's awesome, man. Good for you, Steve. We can educate each other to really create a community around liberty. That's right, because just like Spike Cohen says, this is a cultural movement first. We're not going to win in Washington until we change this culture. And also, uh, Tom, register as a fucking libertarian. 
Sorry for dropping the F word. It's cool to be an independent. I get you, man. I respect that. At least you're not an establishment party, man. That just tells the world that you haven't decided that you're neutral, that your ideas don't fit in the box. Register as a libertarian. Show them that you reject the establishment. Show them that you're protesting. Um, good job. Good job, Lucas. Uh, man, we've been going for 52 minutes. It's after seven. Anything else you got? Not off the top of my head. All right, brother. Well, guys, please follow the Libertarian Party Veteran Caucus if you don't already. Follow us, Not a Real Libertarian, in many places, including Twitch, Twitter, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Facebook, YouTube, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. We also want to plug the fabulous gubernatorial candidate in Oklahoma, Natalie Bruno. You can find her on Facebook and go to electnataliebruno.com. Please read all the comments through. There's a lot of good recommendations for other people to follow and other pages in the comments. Um, But we love you guys. Thanks for watching. Anything you got to say? Thanks. Bye. (laughs) All right. Bye. Welcome to episode 5 of the 